evening Sundays that we have in Ecclesiastes, and we'll be done by August. And I told Amanda this week that um, I've enjoyed preaching through this book, but I am not touching it again until I'm about 65 or 70, uh, because it's just, it's exhausting to work through. I know it almost seems repetitive, um, but it has been an enjoyable book to go through together. So uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, if you are looking for it, it's after Psalms and Proverbs. It's about the middle. So here now the reading of God's word from Ecclesiastes 9 will be in verses 1 through 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifices, does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, They go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished forever. They have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go! Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, Do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your wise words uh, throughout Ecclesiastes that your preacher has written down for our edification. Lord, we pray that we would see today that you tell us to live life fully, live life deeply, that it is a good thing for us to enjoy the good gifts that you have given us, and that we would always have our hearts and minds pointed, though, to eternity and the fate of everyone. As we preach this word today, Lord, I pray that you would be with me, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would be with this congregation, that the word of God would be magnified, the Son of God glorified, and the people of God edified. Amen. Uh, I met a man not long ago uh, who found out that he was sick and that he was entering the last stages of life. 
And when I asked him how he was doing and what he planned to do with the time he had left, he said this. I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. I loved deeper. I spoke sweeter. I gave forgiveness I'd been denied. And then he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. This is the cheesiest opening I probably will ever do for a sermon. But if you are at all a country fan, uh, this was the hit 2004 song of Tim McGraw, Live Like You Were Dying. It was the inspiration to our sermon series and today's title, I changed it slightly, Live Like You Are Dying. Because in fact, as Ecclesiastes continues to remind us, death is inevitable. It is coming. As we saw uh, throughout the past couple weeks and here today, death is not a respecter of persons. So the question that you know, Tim McGraw is singing about and the one that it, the preacher is continually asking about is, how do we live with death as a certainty? Is there a good way to live? And last week we looked at that, that there is still a good thing about wisdom and that is to navigate difficult situations that we are presented with. We don't just abandon living because death is inevitable. We still need our smarts, our wits, our giftedness to navigate life and to navigate it faithfully. That was more theological. That was more wisdom-oriented. Today we see that there's actually things, ordinary things, joyous things, good things that God gives us that even though, though death is coming, they're meant to be gifts for us to enjoy. And that we only get to enjoy them, as far as the preacher's concerned, while we're living. So that is what we're going to be looking at. And this sermon really just has two points. One is very uplifting. Death is coming. The second is definitely more uh, uplifting. Live like you are dying. So death is coming. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you may have remembered, we structured the sermon a kind of weird because of the way Hebrew is written. So this first point is going to be verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to hop over 7 through 10 um, and take up verses 11 and 12, and then we'll come back to that middle section because that's the focus. That's the climax of the text. And in Western culture, we don't like to have, you know, the building up of something and then its climax and then like scaling back down. We want to have the climax be the ending. So that's the way this will be structured again. So death is coming. Death is coming for everyone. That's what verses one through three say. Again, the, the preacher says, I have laid to heart examining it all. We have seen that he is thorough. He doesn't just briefly read about something. He investigates. And not only does he investigate through knowledge and reading, he lives it. He experiences it. So when he says, I've examined something, we know he has left no stone unturned. He has searched all the Wikipedia pages. He has Googled everything. He is thorough. And what does he discover? The same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, to the evil, to the clean, the unclean, the sinner, the saint. The same event happens to us all. That is that there's death. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Um, I certainly have, but there have been times when I'm laying in bed, I've had a good day, and I'm calming down from the day's uh, 
troubles or good things or whatever. I'm just processing what has happened during the day. And as I'm slowly starting to drift off into unconscious, I'm startled by the fact of, is this what death will feel like? Like this slipping into emptiness, forgetfulness, nothingness. Is that what death is going to be like? And then I start calculating how old I am, how old my grandparents are, my family medical history, the fact that my mom's a cancer survivor. And all of a sudden, I kind of feel like death is at the door waiting for me. And, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. And I have a crisis. Philosophers call it an existential crisis. It's the fact that you realize as a being that you exist and then you die. And the crisis is, what do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that you are going to face death? So this is what he is hitting us with from the beginning. It comes to everybody. So the second question kind of comes up then is, who deserves it? And he asks this in an interesting way. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. The righteous and the wise are biblical wisdom literature designations for people that are part of the believing community. So he's not talking to somebody outside of this point of Israel who doesn't know about the covenants of God or sacrifices. He's talking to people that are part of the people of God. So the righteous and the wise, all of their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. The him there being God. And this is something we've come up with and encountered several times in this text. Why do bad things happen to good people? The good, righteous people here being the people of God. Why is it you know, that Job had to suffer so much? We, we don't know. And so it's not actually a very comforting message. Love or hate, man does not know. So the bad things in my life, the good things in my life, I don't know where they're coming from. Both are before God. So when am I going to find that out? And the preacher doesn't really tell us, but it's implied they're both before him. When they are dead, they will find out. What in this life did I suffer was from God? Was it from, was it from wrath? Was it from love? And the New Testament picks this up in several places. The New Testament gives believers hope of God's profound love for us. The most famous verse of the New Testament is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It also comes up in Romans eight thirty eight. Paul writes, uh, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So like the saints in the Old Testament, the saints in the New Testament, we, we do experience God's love and those are good things to get us through life. But there is also discipline. The New Testament repeatedly warns believers of God's loving discipline. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews said that God disciplines uh, us like a parent disciplines a child. It is hard but necessary to correct wrong behavior, to correct uh, disobedience, to correct, uh, even not disobedience, to correct and protect them from poor decisions, or going off in the wrong direction. Jesus himself in the book of Revelation tells the church in Laodicea that those whom I love I reprove and discipline, 
So be zealous and repent. So who deserves it? If he's already starting off with the righteous, it implies that death is still coming to the people of God. That's one of the effects of the fall that even though you know, Christ has been risen from the dead, and if you are believe in him, you're united with him, we don't get out of that one. We still have to face it. And so everyone still deserves it. In verse 3, he acknowledges that it is an evil event that happens to the good and the bad. And he admits that the hearts of the children of man are already full of evil. Remember, we saw that a couple weeks ago in Ecclesiastes 7. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul talks about that in Romans, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But his language here is echoing some greater story way back in Genesis. When Genesis, in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve had been kicked out of the garden, uh, we see that the people of the world continue in sin, and God uh, sees that the intention of their hearts are only evil continually. We are all deserving it. So this is the, the first point of that. Death is inevitable. There's not much you can do about it, whether you're a rich superstar or you are homeless. You have actually something in common. You're both going to die. That's disconcerting. We don't like that. Let's add on to it. Not only are you going to die, you don't get to decide when to die. Death is unpredictable. We won't know it until we actually meet it. This is the skipping part. Skip down to verse 11 with me. The preacher says, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, the battle to the strong, bread to the wise, riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. We don't know when our hour comes. I used this illustration a couple weeks ago, but um, when the great Roman generals would come back into Rome victorious and people would be celebrating them and throwing flowers at them, and they may be tempted to believe that maybe they would be a really good emperor of Rome. Maybe they would have the, the power and support of the people to become the man. Maybe he could even become, you know, the next god and be deified and have people worship him and really let all this get to his head. The Romans knew this, so they included a servant behind him in the chariot that at random points would whisper into his ear, Memento Mori, remember you will die. Death comes for us at set times to God's sovereignty, but we're not filled in on when that is. Uh, my daughter and I were watching a documentary of the famous pharaoh Tutankhamun. Anybody know about Tutankhamun? You may remember from world history. He was like the youngest pharaoh uh, that we have recorded. He was basically a boy king. He reigned for a few years during his teenage years. He died and was forgotten in the 20s. His tomb was discovered, and what was remarkable about it is unlike other pharaohs, it was untouched. Grave robbers never got to it. It's filled with all these riches. Over 5,000-some-odd artifacts have been uh, cataloged and, and saved in Cairo. But one of the things that's a mystery about his uh, tomb is that when, they, when Howard Carter found it in 1923 or 4 and opened it up, there was no grave robbers that had ever come near the place, but the tomb was a mess. I mean, things were scattered everywhere. It didn't make any sense. If you look at the photos, you can see and get a sense of the chaos. And what they discovered through all of this painstaking research and, and, and investigation is that 
Tutankhamun died unexpectedly. He was only 19 years old. But he was, he was Pharaoh. He was a living God. Death isn't supposed to strike him unexpectedly. Death isn't supposed to come and just snatch him away like that, but that is exactly what happened to him. And so his people had to frantically decide, you know, bury him, and so they literally were just throwing things into the tomb so that he would have everything he needs when he goes into the afterlife. That is death comes swiftly for a young person, which, as we've been praying for today, I think we can think about, it, it seems always more tragic when it is someone young. But death also is still unexpected, even when you're older. I've, you know, uh, Polycarp was a famous uh, church father uh, in the early church. He lived to be well into his 80s when he was martyred. And the, the story of his martyrdom is a thing of almost Christian legend. I mean, the Roman guards come to arrest him, and he tells them to wait, and the guards literally sit and wait for him to pray for like five hours before he comes back down and says, now I'm ready. I've spoken to several people as they have gotten older, and there is a sense of being prepared, but death is still something that will come unexpected, whether it is through finally bodily deterioration or cancer or something else. We don't get to plan it. Man does not know his time. So if we know that death is inevitable and we don't get to choose the way we want to go out, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live like you are dying. Verses 7 through 10 have been called the carpe diem of Ecclesiastes. This is seize the entire day that God gives you as gift. And it is really hard-hitting because it starts off with a bunch of imperatives, a bunch of commands. So look at me with me in verse 7. It doesn't translate as well, so I'm going to help it out a little bit. Go! Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. The first word right away commands us to get busy enjoying life. Don't waste anything. Go, get out there, see sights, do things, go on vacations, go to the Grand Canyon, go on really long trips with your kids. Go eat at great restaurants is the second command. Eat's an actual imperative. It's a command to take the good things. It's a command to feast. It isn't a command to gluttony or to be in such a rush that you don't enjoy your food. One commentator even said this isn't a summons to be a pig. This is some, a summons to be a bit of a food snob. Go and eat something slowly taste quite literally the goodness of creation, the goodness of somebody that is really skilled at being a chef and God's blessed with a palate to bring out all these flavors that you get to eat and, and delight in. Drink is the third imperative, and it's a command. Drink wine with a merry heart. Not drunkenness, but delighting in the sweetness of wine. Uh, my, I've shared it several times. I grew up Pentecostal. Big no-no is drinking for Pentecostals. And uh, my grandma had some missionary friends to the former Soviet Union at the time. And when they came back to the United States, they were actually prescribed by their doctor to drink some wine. It would help with their cholesterol. It's, it's one of the few alcohols that actually does help your body out. They couldn't do that. So they actually asked for like the exact measurement 
and they would pour it out in like a medicinal looking kind of shot glass thing and they'd look at each other and you know take it together at the same time like you would take NyQuil or some type of cough syrup. Don't be afraid of it, the author of Ecclesiastes says. Wine is good for the heart. It is a sweetness from the vine. You may think these aren't really spiritual commands, right? Where's the call to holiness? If we are living like we're dying, shouldn't we live holy? Where's the summons to piety? We have plenty of biblical commands for those. Ecclesiastes is a book that shows us how to live in preparation for death. And one of the repeated criticisms it gives of religion is that this is, religion can often be used as a way to manipulate God. We saw that before too, right? The idea that they, the person that would just be more pious, more religious, more exalted, inevitably uses it to get things out of God. See how great I am. I fast three times a week. I do all the right things. I say all the right things. I listen to all the right music. I don't watch you know, bad movies or TV shows. I do everything right. You owe me, God. That is a terrible way to think about a relationship with God, and it's not a biblical way of doing so. So Ecclesiastes just doesn't address it because it doesn't care about it. Ecclesiastes is a practical theology for the practical person. Jesus was different from us in many, many ways. But one of the ways that he was certainly different was that he actually did know when he was going to die. He knew the time, date, hour. So what did he do? He did all the religious things. He preached a doctrine of repentance. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. He healed. He discipled men and women. But he also ate and drank a lot. In fact, when some Pharisees come to accuse uh, Jesus about the fact that he drinks so much, this is what Jesus says to them. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But just because Jesus drank and feasted and enjoyed good things in life, he's pointing out to these Pharisees, wasn't breaking any laws. It wasn't sinning. It was not what comes into a person that makes them guilty. It's what comes out of them, out of the heart, come all sorts of evil desires, Jesus said back to them. Jesus multiplied bread to feed the hungry. His first miracle was making the best wine in the world, probably, when he turned water into wine. His last act with his disciples was to have a big meal together. Feasting was such a part of his life and discipleship that after Pentecost, the church daily went to the temple, and then they went and broke bread together, receiving their food, Luke tells us, with glad and generous hearts. These commands are grounded in something deep and gracious. It's the approval of God. That's the second part of seven. It says God has already approved of what you do. Throughout the Bible, we see a pattern of something called the indicatives and then the imperatives. The indicative is the grounding of who God is and why he gives you, has the authority to then give you imperatives, commands. We see this clearly in like the biggest commands of all time, the Ten Commandments. We are really familiar, they're, you know, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. But right before they start is the indicative, I am the God who took you up 
out of Egypt. I am the God who saved you. The God who is about to tell you how to live a good and fruitful life is the one who saves and redeems. Here we kind of see a bit of the opposite. Here are all these commands to enjoy life, to go, to eat, to drink, to delight in life, because I already approve of what you do. This is not licensed to just do whatever you want. This is not licensed to hedonism. It's a lot closer to John Piper's famous maxim, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The idea here is that we can enjoy the good things of life because God has given them to us and accepted us. He, in fact, delights in our delighting of the gifts he gives us. And I think all of us probably know what this is like, too. When you're a kid, you just associate getting presents with just the receiving of them. You, like, my daughter is already asking about Christmas, and even though she just got a puppy this week, she's excited about Christmas and presents. But as you get a little bit older, a little bit more mature, I hope all of us have experienced the delight in giving somebody a gift. The joy of watching them open up a present and just immediately be overwhelmed with either the thoughtfulness of it or sometimes the extravagance of it. But that seeing them enjoy something that you spent time and energy either making or purchasing or finding is beautiful. You see the delighting of another person is something you did for them and you delight in their delightedness. God has already approved of what you do. He is delighting in your eating and your drinking and your going. One commentator said that this is the closest the preacher will come to the doctrine of justification. And this is true, but I think it hits a lot more at assurance, which is something that comes out a result of our justification. We who are in Christ are forgiven. We know we are accepted by God because of Christ's work on the cross. Jesus himself told us that if we are sinful, that we who are sinful know how to give good gifts, how much more does our heavenly Father? So this, in, this statement of God has already approved of what you do is to assure us that creation is meant to be grabbed and enjoyed, and you can only do that right now while you live. Moving on to the good gifts, we'll hit two others that he gives us to enjoy before we die, comfort and companionship. In verse 8, it says um, that your garments be always white and let not oil be lacking on your head. It's kind of a weird historical context that seems extremely foreign to us, but what he is saying is they lived in a very, very hot environment, and a good way to stay cool is to be dressed in white clothing or light clothing. Also, they lived in a very dry climate, so they were, skin was dry. A way of moisturizing back in the ancient Near East was to actually be putting oil on your body to moisturize. Preacher is saying that just because death is coming doesn't mean we need to live like Puddleglum for the silver chair. If you don't get the reference, he's miserable. He's dressed in black. He's constantly complaining. He doesn't want to enjoy anything good because he's, he's a serious sort of fellow, and he just wants to be a realist. That's not what the book of Ecclesiastes is like. That's not what the Christian life is like. And sometimes we're associated with that. We're associated with we don't have fun. uh, We don't enjoy things. We don't enjoy comfortable things. There's certain groups within Christianity that, you know, don't want their women to wear makeup or want them to wear really long skirts or the men need to always be shirt and ties when they come to church. It's similar to, you know, a life like the Adams family who are always just black and dark and morbid. 
we're actually invited to take care of ourselves. That's like one of the big cultural things now, self-care. Make sure to have moments of meditation, moments of you know, peace and calm, do a skin routine, take a oatmeal milk bath. I don't know what else to say about that, but self-care is something that I've heard is quite important. But Ecclesiastes is saying it is. It is important to take care of yourself. And we can actually do this, and our bodies are good, and we should enjoy the time that they are working. And in verse 9, it says, it begins with yet another imperative. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Enjoy is an imperative that is actually literally see. See the woman that God has given this, uh, you. See the husband that God has given you. Enjoy them. Companionship is deep and rewarding. Proverbs said, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Not your young wife or trader in for a newer model. It is enjoy the wife that you get to have life with. And also shows us that we're designed, one of the good things in life is that we're designed for companionship. Some of you here don't, aren't married. Then this is still a good to aspire to. Both marriage and also deep friendships. Our culture kind of has this weird thing now about friendship. We're not as close to people as we used to be. I saw a statistic, and it's always dangerous to do statistics, especially on the fly, but it, was, it marked the decrease in men in relationships within the past 20 years. In 1990, it was like 10% of all men could report having close friendships with other men, at least two or three. 2021, 3%. We're aching because of a lack of companionship, which God is saying is good. Go out and find it. Grab it. Enjoy it. It is a sign of my grace. So if you're going to live like you are dying, here's one last thing. If you're going to live like you are dying, you have to work for God's glory. Verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Throughout Ecclesiastes, he's hit on not being thinking work will save you, not thinking work will give you meaning, not being consumed by work, and he's also criticized laziness. The Bible only speaks of work as either punishment for sin, which is what one of the curses that God gave to man. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to struggle with creation. But there is a way that work is redeemed when it is done out of it being recognized as a gift from God, something that we can do for his glory. So we actually are supposed to seek work, whatever your hand finds to do. Don't be lazy. That's not a good virtue. Nobody wants to just be, you know, sitting around doing nothing. It's not attractive. It's not good for you. You end up mooching off of other people. Find something to do and go ahead and do it. And do it energetically. Do it with all of your might. Paul says in the, his letter to Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The toil that we actually do in life, we can do just like everything else, whether it's the eating, the drinking, the experiencing of life, we can actually use work to enjoy it, to give good gifts back to God and to others. Have you ever met somebody that is completely energized by what they do? It actually is intoxicating in a sense. It makes you want to either go and try to you know, do what they're doing or find something in life that you enjoy it doing as much as they enjoy that. 
I've met a few people who have done that. I've always been blown away by it. And it is, yet again, a sign of God's grace to you. So death is coming, so we're supposed to live like you are dying. The preacher throughout Ecclesiastes is very unclear about what happens when you die. In Sheol, he says, to which you are going, there's no more work, thought, knowledge, or wisdom. Sheol is an ancient Israelite concept. It's, for the most part, it's a, it's a barrenness. It's a nothingness. The good and the evil both end up there. In the New Testament, we see even Jesus make some type of reference possibly to this as um, he sees uh, Lazarus, the poor man, and the rich ruler. Lazarus was a poor man who studied out front of a rich man's uh, house, and every day the rich man ignored him while he's suffering, and they both die, and the rich man goes to hell. And Lazarus, though, he's caught up in Abraham's bosom. That was another language for Sheol. But the preacher's basically just forcing us to face death, and he's not telling us what comes next. But for us that are believers in Jesus Christ, that have the New Testament, that have the covenant of Jesus, we know what's coming next. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the most beautiful, definitive articulations of what the resurrection means in your life, would say this, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The victory is through Jesus Christ. So as we face our deaths, and we don't know the timing of when they come, we don't despair. We enjoy the good gifts that God has given us, and we have a sure promise that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we are united with him, then what is true for him will be true for us. His victory over death is our victory over death. As he has risen, we will someday rise. And when we rise, we come back to these imperatives. We will go into the kingdom of God, which is heaven come down on earth. We will eat the feast of the supper of the Lamb, and we will drink the wine of life. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you that you are a God that delights in good things for us to delight in, that you want to see us taste and see your goodness in your creation, your goodness in relationships. You are a God who cares over all things of our life, both our souls and our bodies. As we come to your table, we get to experience just that, the taking care and provision of our souls and bodies as we participate in the supper of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we come to the Lord's Supper now. Please stand as we will sing verses 1 and 2 of hymn 146, Break Thou the Bread of Life.